Hello everyone, I'm Dr. David Perlmutter and you are watching the Empowering Neurologist program. Today we're going to talk about the mind-gut connection. You know this connection that people talk about between what goes on in the gut and what goes on in the brain, affecting cognition, affecting even mood. And our guest is Dr. Emron Mayer. He's the author of this incredible uh, new book that you'll be seeing very, very soon called The Mind-Gut Connection. I first had the opportunity to meet with Dr. Mayer as he was one of our guest speakers at last year's International Microbiome Symposium that we held here in Florida. He is a gastroenterologist, but he's also a neuroscientist, and he's a professor in the departments of medicine, physiology, and psychiatry at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. He is the executive director of the Oppenheimer Family Center for Neurobiology of Stress, again at UCLA, and he's one of the pioneers and leading researchers in the role of what are called mind-body interactions in health and chronic disease. His scientific contributions in uh, the United States, both uh, nationally as well as even international uh, communities, uh, in the broad area of basic and translational enteric neurobiology and wide-ranging applications in uh, clinical GI diseases and disorders are virtually uh, unparalleled. He is, he's published more than 300 scientific papers and co-edited three books. Uh, his most recent work has focused on the role of gut microbes, the microbiome uh, being uh, what we're talking about here, and how the microbiome, meaning the gut microbes and their DNA and their metabolic products, how they influence the brain, the role of food, uh, how food addiction comes into to play in this discussion, and even obesity. He has a long-standing interest in ancient healing traditions and uh, affords them a level of respect that we typically don't see uh, in Western medicine. He uh, wrote and co-produced the award-winning documentary In Search of Balance. He's been interviewed on national public radio, public television, and many other national and international uh, media outlets, including the Los Angeles Times, Atlantic Magazine, uh, and he also did a, a really compelling uh, TEDx talk at UCLA on the mysterious origin of gut feelings uh, that was done back in 2015. So we're going to talk today about this really wonderful new book and uh, learn uh, what Dr. Emron Mayer is up to at this, at this time. So I'm really uh, delighted, Dr. Mayer, to have this opportunity to speak with you today. And we're very, very excited about your new book coming out, The Mind-Gut Connection. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, who knew? But, you know, the beginning of your book um, starts by you almost having to validate this notion that things in the gut influence the brain. Why has there been over the years such a pushback between us getting our arms around this relationship between the gut and the brain? Well, first of all, it's great to be on the show. Um, the answer your uh, question, I mean, this pushback continues to exist really in within the medical community and amongst many gastroenterologists. I think there's been a slow acceptance of this concept that the brain actually is an important part of the, um, the digestive system and that the brain-gut axis um, is equally relevant as specific things that that gastroenterologists have focused just at the at the gut level. Um, why the pushback? I mean, you know, you could use this often and use um, 
story of uh, Descartes' the Cartesian split that um, science uh, has that that medicine is primarily focused on um, on the on on the body and has left the brain to religion and psychologists and um, that anything that happens at the brain level still very prevalent concept for gastroenterologists and for some patients is psychological. Uh, which so I, why I, did a guy? What's a nice guy like you doing in the brain? In other words. How does a gastroenterologist suddenly become interested in the effects of the gut on the brain? What what happened? Well, well, it wasn't suddenly. So you know, this is a long story. I mean, I tried to condense this down into the key points. Um, before I decided to go into medical school, my main interest was in psychology. I was a big fan of Freudian and Jungian. I mean, this was really something I find really fascinating. Um, then in medical school. Um, when I had to find a, a thesis advisor, I, I I was searching. It was very hard, as kind of described within the book. Um, I've, I ended up in the Physiological Institute of Munich, where a very prominent investigator was looking at the connections between the brain and the heart, um, mainly the regulation of coronary blood flow and um, a myocardial perfusion, differential perfusion during stress, and. That was exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but then, you know, I, I, I did a um, clinical rotation at the Mass General um, in the summer and in gastroenterology, and that convinced me that the, the clinical field of gastroenterology was more interesting to me at the time than cardiology. So that's how I ended up with, with GI. And the best example at the time in GI was really... Um, the functional GI disorders, which were a puzzle to the medical community and which matched very well with my brain-heart experience. And so I essentially applied the same viewpoints, same concepts on the GI tract. What, what did change then that, you know, with the heart, the main action is really from the brain to the heart. With the GI tract, it become became pretty obvious very soon that it goes in both directions. So... This, the brain influences the gut, and the gut sends back signals to the brain. So it's it's a very integrated circular system. It's not one way or the other, you know. So that um, so I'm I'm glad I made this transition into the in into the field of gastroenterology, and um, um, we have some interactions now at UCLA with cardiologists who paying a lot of attention to that same topic now as well. So, I mean, there's a slow paradigm shift, I think, within medicine. Well, when I read that in your book, I, I was very taken by the fact that uh, third-year medical students have to create a, do, defend a thesis, basically, and that your proposal about, you know, this, this interaction was, I think, by the person who was overseeing this, I think that he rejected your ideas and told you that wasn't going to lead anywhere. Um, well, this was for the, yeah, for the initial proposal. Once I've I worked in that lab, you know, so, I mean, I worked there for four years, so it was really a, a, in, in a basic science department, um, which prolonged my, my medical studies, but um, th that lab was fully on, fully on board with that. Um, but it was hard to find a person, and, you know, so many people I talked to said, oh, you know, this can't really be studied scientifically, we all know it's part of medicine, but you can't do a thesis on that thing. So, but how incredible it is that all uh, of that science has been sort of rewritten 
now that we understand the influence of the gut microbiota in terms of uh, changing mood, in terms of influencing behavior. And I wonder if you could just give us a quick overview in terms of the various channels by which the gut microbiota are influencing the brain. Yeah, so there's channels, again, in that mediate this bidirectional uh, communication. So from, from the brain to the gut and, uh, and the microbes that live in it, um, I would say the most important channel um, is the autonomic nervous system. Um, always highlight this one example of that during stress where we activate the sympathetic nervous system, there's not just release of norepinephrine into our blood affecting the heart, but um, research has shown that there's a release, pretty hefty release into the gut lumen. So uh, what does it do there? When, when these findings were first discovered, you know, same thing for serotonin here in our um, uh, uh, center, serotonin was that molecule, and people ignored it, and the research was not pursued. This was like 20 years ago. Now we know that uh, microbes have receptors for serotonin, dynorphin, norepinephrine, all the what we used to call the gut hormones. Um, so the same chemicals that our body uses to communicate with between different organs in the brain, our brain influences the release of those in the gut. They affect the microbial behavior, the gene expression. So that's one channel. Um, I, have to, I have to stop you right there because that's really profound. And I, I want to make sure that uh, our viewers catch that, that these uh, receptors for neurotransmitters that we're all hyped up about being in the brain uh, that are the target of pharmaceutical manipulation are in fact also on the cell surfaces of various organisms living in the gut and that these same chemicals are uh, being used to modify bacterial behavior, probably more metabolic behavior, obviously, but that these are the same chemicals that we all like to talk about. Absolutely. And, you know, so this is sort of fascinating to me because, I mean, I, I came to UCLA as a, um, like before my GI fellowship to, um, to actually study these peptide molecules, they used, they used to be called gut peptides before we realized they're not just limited to the gut, but then the brain there. And now we know that that they're also that the, that the microbes use them. So it's kind of the universal language of of our entire organism. And it's it's ironic or interesting that the microbes are the ones that developed those those this language. You know, billions of years ago as a means of communicating with each other. Um, and then during evolution, they gradually um, were adopted probably by something that's called lateral gene transfer, so that these microorganisms could transfer these genes into primitive animals. And then in the animals, where they were first in the GI tract, they gradually made it up into the brain. Um, so the reason that, that, that we now have this completely interconnected system by which the brain and its emotions affect the behavior of these microbes and change change their behavior, change what they produce, which then affects us again, um, is, I, I think for me, it's, it's the most profound, um, you know, and and the most satisfying aspect of my, of my research. It really come full circle. Um, studying this some 40 years ago, you know, in these, these peptides when they were extracted from tons of, of uh, pig intestine, because um, we didn't have the sophisticated ways of, that we have today, to what we understand today, you know, I, I find that absolutely fascinating. 
We all think back about the work of Dr. Candace Pert, Molecules of Emotion, and uh, you know, remember the, the groundwork uh, that she put forth uh, for our understanding uh, the role of these uh, mediators, uh, these signaling molecules, uh, in modulating mood, etc. But now you bring just a whole new level of complexity in a good way uh, to what, you know, their history and, and what really may be going on. Um, uh, probably three years ago now, I heard you lecture at Harvard and you were presenting your data uh, of your uh, study where you had uh, provided, there were 36 women, I believe, and you provided one group with a probiotic enriched yogurt and followed them over a four week period of time and then uh, measured them in terms of, you did some functional imaging of their brains, as I recall. That was a very, very profound uh, result that you, that you achieved. And I remember I asked you about that, and we didn't know each other at that point, but I came up after and asked you about it. And you were so humble, you said, well, you know, we need to do more research in the future. But I want to revisit that now that uh, a few years have elapsed. And uh, just again indicate to you that the notion that manipulating somebody's food in terms of its probiotic content had, uh, that it had a, a significant effect on their perception of the world, basically, in terms of anxiety through the pathways that were changed. That's a pretty intense bit of science that um, I think a lot of people might have a, a tough time really embracing. But now that a few years have elapsed since you published, what are you thinking retrospectively about that study that you did? Yeah, I mean, I think it's still, it's it's kind of a paradigm shifting study because up to that point and quite honestly up to now, um, there's, there's, there's very little data in humans that, that has indicated that some of these uh, spectacular experiments that have been published from, from mice, from uh, notobiotic mice and um, that, you know, changes in the, the gut microbiota with antibiotics, probiotics, um, or growing up, you know, without the bacteria would have profound effects on, on emotional behaviors and feeding behaviors. It, it's, it still remains the best, or, you know, the only study really that has demonstrated this in humans. We're pursuing this on multiple levels in new studies. And I, I have to say, if it hadn't been for this study, I mean, I was a big skeptic of the mouse studies, not in terms of their scientific validity, but in terms of their relevance for complex human behavior and emotions. I, I still, I'm, I'm still a skeptic of, of that. <laughs> How do you know if a mouse is depressed, basically? <laughs> yeah, and the kind of behaviors that are being used in the laboratory to assume this is rel you know, related to, to human depression or human anxiety or, or autism with all the complex symptoms. I, I think it's, it's, it's difficult. And, um, but since we found this in, in healthy women, you know, that changed the course of my uh, research because we've, we've now launched like, every single study that we do longitudinally and um, long-term studies, studies with evaluating the effect of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, mindfulness-based stress reduction. We now always look at the microbes and the metabolites that they produce and do, do these interventions change, uh, change their, their, their behavior. Um, so th that study had this profound, you know, career shifting influence on me and I'm delighted we did it. Believe it or not, I mean, the company um, that provided the probiotic 
had pursued me for years if you wanted to do something like that and <laughs> I always said I always said we have too much going on you know we have NIH funded studies I, I can't spend a year or two doing this kind of work and because I didn't believe it Honestly. Well, I, I want you to know that that study didn't just change your trajectory, but there are many of us who were highly influenced by the results of that study. And it really was a paradigm shifter for us because it was an interventional trial in humans uh, that you, 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 know, you actually demonstrated uh, graphically on the imaging studies the changes that happened. That's a big aha moment when you look at changing someone's food that is enriched with probiotics and seeing changes in brain functionality, that's, no pun intended, it's a lot to swallow, a lot to get your arms around. So, I mean, there, are, there have been a, a very few studies uh, using uh, Lactobacillus helveticus and Bifidobacterium longum, strain specific, and seeing some changes in humans. But I would agree that we're really at a very nascent stage uh, in our understanding of what specific uh, organisms may do, and even more primitive uh, place that we are in terms of ever even considering uh, intervention or therapeutic utilization of, of probiotics. But we're starting to see some, at least anecdotes, uh, in terms of people changing their diets, uh, adding more prebiotics. And you know, you talk about it in your book, and you talk, we'll, we'll get to that, what your dietary recommendations are. So I think you're building on some pretty sound, um, sound information that's now been generated. And, you know, I mean, you have to realize we're in the very beginning of, of this field. So, I mean, the concept of, you know, that, that has been uh, coined by some investigators in this field, like about psychobiotics. Um, I, I think the concept in itself is interesting um, and may have some validity. I think we're way far away from having those kind of, um, you know, uh, molecules or organisms. But since we're able to, change the genetic makeup so we can change microbial production of GABA, for example, or, or serotonin precursor tryptophan. Um, it, it creates a very intriguing, totally new way of, of treating, um, you know, serious brain disorders. And I, I mean, not that I'm totally without reservations for these kind of approaches because it's like you're messing with a very complex ecology um, it's sort of introducing like a new species in Australia like the rabbits and then you know later you realize this was a disastrous thing to do um, I, I sort of trust more into you know changing your diet and, and and changing the prebiotics how you feed the existing but these these attempts are ongoing you know to manipulate microbes to do specific things they could produce Insulin, they could produce acids, serotonin, like your own antidepressant in a more physiological way. Big caveat, if you do this to one organism, what does it do to the ecology of the system with unintended consequences? Well, I think the broad strokes have to do with changes in microbial diversity. I mean, I think that's a common theme that's per pervasive throughout the literature these days is that there are health consequences associated with loss of microbial diversity, both in humans as well as laboratory animals. That said, you know, the, uh, your colleagues, Sonnenbergs, recently published a report showing a fairly dramatic drop in uh, uh, laboratory animals that were inoculated with human microbiota, a drop in the diversity when their um, uh, availability of 
um, metabolizable um, fiber was compromised. In other words, when they had a, a reduction in the uh, um, a bit of fiber, basically, prebiotic mm -hmm. fiber available to them, they lost their diversity. But what they showed, thought was really fascinating, was when they resumed higher levels of prebiotic fiber, a carbohydrate, uh, that the diversity increased again, not to its former level, but what was even more compelling was the fact that generation after generation, when they kept giving them the low uh, carbohydrate, uh, the low um, metabolizable carbohydrate diet, less fiber, that the, the recoverability became less and less and they continued to lose diversity. You know, when you, when you look at a study like that, an animal study, then you walk around a public place like an airport and look at humans you begin to get a sense that, you know, really what's going on globally is we're losing our microbial diversity. And as such, as you talked about at the very beginning of your book, we are losing our adaptability to environmental changes. So, you know, we talk about food and um, we'll get there in just a moment. But, uh, you know, let's just segue into in a little bit. You're going to, you, you know, at the end of your book, you talked about sort of the paleo ideas. But uh, how important is food if we're paying attention to our diversity of our micro, microbiota? Um, very important. So that there's, there's, there's no question. Um, so, I mean, I have to preface, you know, I'm not a dietary expert per se. So I'm not, and also my, my book was not written about, you know, promoting a particular diet. It's, it's um, I'm in some ways looking more at the, the general picture of, um, and, so one thing that we do know that diet plays a major role. I mean, there's clearly the, the, the microbial composition, the architecture is programmed early on in life. It probably starts even prenatally, um, definitely during birth and then through breast through human breast milk and the, the metabolites and also the microbial organisms that are transmitted during breastfeeding, um, play a big role. And then the, the, the environment of the household. So by age three, if you look at children from, you know, in one of the pivotal studies that was done on this of, um, of natives, primal people living in the jungle of, of, of the Orinoco as opposed to North American cities. So even in these infants that was already before they started their regular diet, there were made were profound differences, including the, the loss of diversity. And so a lot of things happened early on. I think, once we've grown up, our system is much more stable. Um, but what it maintains is this adaptability. So we can, and that's was the best thing for humans that you know we we can go through famines. We can where well, we have no access to meat. We can live without any meat for for years without serious consequences. On the other hand, you know we can be on a high fat, high meat diet. So it's it, it's it's incredibly adaptable. I think that's the uniqueness. And it's totally consistent with this concept of diversity, which goes along with resilience. Um, and so the best, from a microbiome standpoint, the, the best composition is one of, from the early beginning, of great diversity. So, um, so if these individual, I mean, just the fact that humans can have these very different diets that are being recommended um, and not having major um, side effects or you know developed diseases is actually quite remarkable. I think the only exception to that is what what's happened in a North American diet. I think that our our microbes and our brain gut axes are not adapted to handle. I mean, so that's the one exception. 
I think in evolution probably that. Well, you know, we are seeing publications coming out now that really are beginning to correlate the, the differences in the diversity and even uh, looking at um, things like Formicutes, Bacteroides, ratios, etc. in uh, comparing various diets, whether a person is vegan, uh, you know, an omnivore, or, or what various other diets. Yeah. So uh, the, the real question is, is the microbiome <coughs> adapting to that diet in a positive way, or does the microbiome reflect uh, issues that may ultimately prove negative uh, for that individual? I mean, we know that the microbiome changes quite readily based upon diet, but at the same time, we know that the microbiome influences our food choices. So who's in charge here? It's really, uh, it's really quite compelling information. Yeah, and, and, and I think we have become more vulnerable. Um, I, I mean, this is one thing that you know, becomes obvious once you sort of look into this. And for me, it's been helpful to get towards the diet through the microbiome because that's sort of really the, the angle that, I mean, it's kind of ironic as a gastroenterologist, you're really not trained in dietary aspects. It is ironic. It's, it's, I love that. Which is kind of amazing, but so you know, some of us have gotten into through the back door through the microbiome now. And um, if you just think about that, we start out even as as infants, having grown up in 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 a, in a U.S. city um, with this greatly compromised diversity and adaptability, and then we're confronted with an onslaught of unprecedented changes in our food supply. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the different composition of, of macronutrients, but it's the, the chemicals that go into processed food, the emulsifiers, the, the artificial sweeteners, um, the colors. There's a lot of things being added. Um, and also, like, you know, I mean, along the lines of your um, uh, expertise in terms of gluten, I mean, the amount of gluten that's being added to all kinds of foods as a, um, you know, to help to change change the taste or consistency or you know palatability. Um, yeah, I mean, you have to expect that some bad things are going to happen. So you start out with a diminished diversity, um, and then you add things to it, to feed the microbiome things that it's it's never encountered in in evolution before. So I think that's the worrisome thing, and I think many of the diseases. That are popping up, you know, like obesity, metabolic syndrome, um, degenerative brain diseases. Um, I mean, some of these diseases have not changed so dramatically as obesity, uh, um, but they are increasing, not just because the population gets older, um, and, and you've pointed this out in your own books elegantly that, you know, we, we, we sort of, it's just slowly starting that people look at. Um, like Alzheimer's disease as a inflammatory disease of the brain, and inflammation clearly is one thing that's you know starts at the gut level to to a big degree. So I, I think those pieces are slowly coming together. Um, but um, it, to me, it's been amazing to really understand what is the North American diet, and and I personally put less emphasis necessarily on. The components, if you increase your carbs or decrease your fat or, you know, whatever, it's, it's how it's been modified and, and without people realizing it, what, what they're ingesting, you know. 
Well, uh, for our viewers, I, I would encourage you to look back through uh, our, our interviews. Several weeks ago, we interviewed Dr. Stephanie Senna from uh, MIT, and she was talking about some fairly dramatic changes that are occurring in the uh, microbiome as a consequence of levels of glyphosate, the active mm, ingredient in Roundup, um, in our food. So uh, there are a lot of things. Uh, but getting back to just the idea that here you are at this stage of the game, as a gastroenterologist paying attention to food, that's great. I mean, that's, that's a, a mark of completion that is so, is so exciting. You do mention the paleo kind of idea, paleo movement. And, you know, basically that is sort of an attempt by people to emulate what our ancestors may have eaten. Why do you, why do you go to that place? What's the validity here? So that's a very interesting story. Also, you know, point out in, in, in my book that um, during college I had the this you know unusual opportunity to be become part of a documentary film team um, uh, to go to various places, faraway places, usually in with living with primal people. So you know, I went for six weeks to the Yanomami um, at the Orinoco river within the Amazon um, rainforest, uh, another time to um, the Asmat people in, in, in Irian Chaya, in, 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 Irian Chaya in Indonesia. The, the most interesting example to me has been the Yanomami because we now have data from these same tribes um, about the microbiome. And so when I met um, the researcher that you know, led this study, uh, the, the, the sort of pivotal study, really, um, I, I couldn't believe that somebody would have studied those, you know, natives um, that, that really live a, a very primal, prehistoric lifestyle, the untouched ones. And, and we lived in their village for six weeks and observed, saw them hunting, saw what they eat and how they ate. And um, so now I've come back to these and dug out my old diary old, and the film clips of the like all the information we had. So this was like, you know, 40 years ago. And, <clears throat> and I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, and so a couple of things are important about this. And, you know, these people, they, they, they die from various causes, certainly earlier than we in the West do. They don't become 90 or 100 years old. They have accidents. They fight a lot of wars. Um, um, but they seem to be, at, at least what you see is in, in a six-week period, very healthy. We never saw a, a sick person. We saw sick people once they've moved to a missionary um, compound, got all kinds of skin diseases, allergies, obesity. Um, so you, like we saw it right in front of us that going from that lifestyle that they had for thousands of years to just in the same area, moving close to a Western-type um, environment, you know, a lot of diseases popped up. So... Um, so without glorifying this, um, this primal lifestyle, you know, it, 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 it showed, um, it certainly it's, it has health benefits for people in that age group. And so we saw closely what they ate. I mean, they spent a lot of time running around, a lot of exercise, uh, tremendous amount of exercise. Um, they, they eat a relatively small amount of animal protein, um, that they, you know, they shoot birds and monkeys and, 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 and fish um, and a lot of plant-based foods. I mean, they grow, I, I don't know how many species of different plants and, 
um, tubers and collect things. Um, but high fiber plants. That's the key thing. Yeah. It's it's the key thing. So I, I think the reason that they have this very high diversity, I think it's like fourfold higher than you know in the in the West, is this enormous amount of of natural fibers. Very different types. It's not just one, you know, um, food item. It's probably hundreds of different things they pick up in the in the in the jungle. There may be lots of antioxidants as well. I mean, lots of other benefits as well. Um, but the high fiber is clearly, you know, the, the the main thing. I I couldn't tell you. I mean, I know you've interviewed people and and, and you personally have written about this about the importance of fat. Um, the fat content in, in, in health. What we have seen and what I've read up afterwards, so the animals that they shoot and catch obviously are wild animals almost with uh, almost without fat. So this particular you know prehistoric culture has very low fat intake, uh, animal fat intake, uh, very high fiber intake, um, and lots of physical activity. I, I think those three are probably the most relevant components for for one type of healthy diet, and, well, and it's you know it's 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 observational uh, uh, information. But um, you know, in my writings about eating animals and eating fat, I'm, uh, I really am so careful to characterize the fact that these are not uh, factory farmed animals, high in omega six, treated with antibiotics and sprayed with who knows what. That's, that, uh, and that we're not loading the plate with uh, animal products and it's, you know, three to five, uh, it's the size of basically a deck of cards each day in terms of your protein uh, consumption. But I think that overall, the types of protein people derive or by eating plants, not just the protein, but by eating uh, rather animals that are, are produced is very threatening uh, in our society. And um, you know, when people say, well, vegetarians have a, a better risk relation to certain disease entities here in America, there may be some good merit because I think by and large, the meat uh, that's available to us here, you know, 70% of the antibiotics used in America are going into raising cattle, making them fat. As you know, Dr. Martin Blazer, his book, Missing Microbes, was very yeah. eloquent about, you know, his contention that one of the causes of obesity is just the fact that People are so exposed to antibiotics, and antibiotics directly lead to obesity. We've known that since the late 1950s. It's why they're used so aggressively in, in raising animals. The other thing you mentioned I thought was very important as well, and that is that the culture that you observed was anything but sedentary. And, you know, they're up doing stuff all day long, and we really aren't. I recently interviewed, oddly enough, I have the book right here, Dr. Kelly Starrett, and his, his book, there it is, called Desk Bound. And, you know talking about the fact that we spend 8, 10, 12 hours a day sitting on our rear ends. And that wasn't what our Paleolithic hunter-gatherer hunter ancestors did. They were out doing stuff. So I think it's, it's very important because I'm certain that everything you and I have talked about, food, uh, diversity of the microbiome, and physical activity, have huge epigenetic implications in terms of modulating our own genome. So yeah, just, Go ahead. It's just, it's just one comment. I mean, you know, you've also been a big, a big proponent of the the importance of low-grade inflammation. I mean, it seems like this is really becoming the common currency for most chronic illnesses. And when you think about it, what's most beneficial for your health is 
anything that you do or eat or consume that decreases this inflammatory potential. So exercise clearly a very important variable in, in that. Um, and various food components equally important. So, you know, the, the high fiber clearly has also this anti-inflammatory effect. And um, it, it may well be at the end, you know, once this is sort of more widely accepted in the medical, uh, medical community, that we realize that many of the, these processed foods and the way they are made and the, what's in them um, might be more relevant for our health than exactly the composition of what we eat. You know, that, that's kind of, I mean, I can't prove this, but from my understanding, I think um, anything that sort of aims at reducing this inflammatory potential in our body, and then we know multiple channels of communications to the brain, to, through the vagus nerve, through circulating cytokines, other inflammatory molecules can you know, stimulate inflammatory processes within the brain. So I, I think there's sort of these, what I've found, there's more these global concepts evolving, and certainly I do it in my own lifestyle. Um, I, I, I don't focus on one thing. I, I look at this as we're a complicated machine, we're an ecosystem, we have to be, you know, engineers as I write about, engineers of our ecosystem management, and multiple things contribute to the optimal functioning of the sequence and increased diversity. Well, I, I think it's a very uh, great place for us to end today. And that is that uh, after your 40 years and my 35 years of exploration and wondering what this is all about, we come to the conclusion, who knew that food probably matters most. So, uh, and yet, you know, it's so uh, disenchanting how little uh, is expended in terms of bringing that information in medical training. You know, many medical schools don't get any nutritional training whatsoever. And yet look what we're talking about now, that the most leverageable aspect of our decision-making uh, tree is the food that we choose to eat. And whether it's the macronutrients or micronutrients or the additives, who knows? But I think, you know, the global picture, you were a very big proponent at the end of your book about the simple word organic. You mentioned yeah. it several times, and um, now I see you know why you say that, and and we're all in. So, uh, congratulations on the new book. I am certain it's going to be very very successful, and I sure enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it myself. Okay, talk soon. Okay, bye bye. I really enjoyed that. Uh, Dr. Mayer is uh, an amazing individual doing so much work and really breaking down these barriers that have kind of restricted Western science, Western research, and Western clinicians from embracing the notion that there is this profound relationship between what goes on in the gut and, for example, our mood, and understanding that the foods we eat have a role to play in changing the microbes and their function in the gut, and this has a huge effect on mood and cognition as well. So thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter.